Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. How do you know who to believe? How can you know to whom you should listen? There's a time, perhaps in the not too distant past, when that question wasn't too difficult for most Americans to answer. There were authorities that were trusted. You could listen to your parents. You could listen to your teachers at school. You could listen to what the government said regarding what it knew about what was going on in the world. In the evenings, you could listen to the news delivered by CBS anchorman Walter Conkrite, Cronkite, the so-called most trusted man in America. You could read the news in the New York Times, the so-called paper of record. Those days feel far away, don't they? Ideas that began in the, the fringes of 1960s European philosophy departments have become so common to us that they serve as the plot of almost every Pixar movie, and we don't even notice. The idea is that in the end, you can't actually trust anyone. Everyone who claims to know the truth is really just grabbing at power. Everyone who wants you to believe something is trying to control you and exploit you for their purposes. So science, medicine, government, religion, the academy, even the family structure, they all exist to, to further the interests and to codify the prejudices of those who are in power. So in the end, all you have is yourself, your truth, your perspective. That's not to say that your perspective is right or authoritative. Your perspective is just one of an infinite number of potentially legitimate interpretations of the world, but it's the only one you have, and it's the only one ultimately that you can trust. We live in an age of deep-seated skepticism. And that's not totally wrong. The Bible teaches us that everyone in this world is fallen. Everything about this world is tainted by sin. Everything and everyone in this world is in rebellion against its creator. And so as Christians, we have a category for governments and institutions and authorities that are corrupt and self-interested. We even know that our own hearts aren't reliable. We know that our hearts have agendas, that, that our hearts won't hesitate to exploit our minds in order to get its way. But it does feel that in all of this skepticism about authority and about the trustworthiness of, of the people telling us the truth, it does feel like in all of this skepticism, something's been lost. It does feel that ultimately, as a society, that the center cannot hold. 
we can't find consensus on who's telling us the truth. So we can't agree on who won an election. We can't agree on who's to blame for an act of violence. We can't agree on which account of our nation's history is most accurate. And if that's not bad enough, it feels like we are on the frontier of an even greater age of confusion and disinformation. It feels like we are just beginning to dip our toes in the water of chaos. Did you know the Pope was rolling around in a, a puffy, expensive white jacket looking like a, like a movie star? Well, he wasn't, actually. But it's not hard to find an AI-generated image on the internet that sure made it seem like he did. Did you hear the recording of the prominent British politician berating one of his staff members in a, a profane tirade? It was explosive stuff, the kind of stuff that brings down governments and destroys careers, except that it was probably a fake generated by AI. Unless it wasn't, because experts basically have concluded there's no way to tell. There's something diabolical about all of this, isn't there? The devil trades in suspicion of authority, in sowing doubt about who it is that you can trust. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the serpent in the garden puts to the very first humans uh, the, the question, who can you believe? He puts them in a position where they have to make a choice. Can they trust God? Is his account of reality reliable and true? God had spoken clearly to Adam and Eve, saying that they were free to eat of any tree in the garden except one specific tree. The serpent didn't, didn't say that God didn't actually mean that. He just suggested that God wasn't trustworthy, that he didn't really actually intend to carry out his, his consequences that he promised. And of course, they made a disastrously bad choice. And ever since, we've lived in a world where we're plagued by the question, who do we know, how do we know who to trust? Who can speak accurately to us about the world? How do we know who's telling us the truth? Again, those are questions that come up often in our public discourse, but you can see how it's particularly pressing when it comes to matters of religion and faith. And what we've been seeing for the past few months is that the church to which the New Testament letter of 1 John was written had been through something of a crisis of authority. If you remember, false teachers have crept into this church. They began to teach a different message than the message that was delivered to this church by John and the other apostles. Right? The, the, the people sent out by Jesus, commissioned by him to preach his gospel and to begin churches, had set up this church, and these false teachers had come in and created something of a crisis. The church had to figure out who was telling them the truth. Who is it that has legitimate authority to speak on Jesus' behalf? They had to choose who they were going to listen to. And in our passage for this morning from 1 John chapter 4, John's going to tell us how, when it comes to matters of faith, we can decide. How it is we can choose. How it is that we can identify who it is we can listen to. And so as we approach this text, what I'd like to do this morning is, is simply see three things. First, let's see the need for discernment. So the need for discernment. Second, let's see how it is we can know. And then finally, we'll see the greatness of God's spirit. So the need for discernment, how it is we can know, 
and the greatness of God's spirit. Hopefully as we go along, those things will make sense. So first, the need for discernment. And since we don't have the screen uh, this morning, you'll be particularly uh, helped, I think, if you follow along uh, with a Bible uh, in the passage. We'll be referring back to 1 John 4, 1 to 6 repeatedly. And so if you have it open in front of you, I think you'll be served well there. The need for discernment. You see it in verse 1. John says this. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So the command at the very outset is that the believers in this church should not, John says, believe every spirit. It seems that the challenge was that some of John's first readers were prone to uncritically accept any teaching that claimed to be made in the name of Christ. But John commands them there in the middle of verse 1 to evaluate, to assess with a critical eye. John sees that different teaching is inspired, it is motivated, it is informed by different spirits, different invisible but very real spiritual forces. So there are spirits that are from God, and there are spirits that inspire false prophecy and false teachers, right? those who claim to be speaking on behalf of Jesus, but who are not actually teaching the truth about him. So he says there, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. There is a category, there is a possibility that the, the spirit that is inspiring the, the teacher that's teaching you is not from God. This is not a new issue in John's day. It's one that Jesus identified for his followers. So for just one example, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells his followers this. He tells, says that they must, this is Matthew 7 verse 13, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And there, those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Now that's not an easy message. That's not a popular message. But Jesus was never interested in flattering people or telling them what they wanted to hear. Jesus told them the truth. But he also warned his people that there would be other teachers. Prophets who would come to them. Appearing to be speaking in his name. But they wouldn't come with the truth. Instead, they would come to profit off of them and exploit them and deceive them. So in the very next verses, right after Jesus gets done telling them, look, you have to enter by the narrow gate. You have to walk the hard path. In the very next verses, in Matthew 7, 15, he says this, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Jesus says, beware of false prophets. Right? There are people who will come and teach a different message than the message that Jesus has taught. Here in our, our passage for this morning, John says, test the spirits. And then he says, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. But again, this makes sense in the context of the community to which John is writing there had been something of a church split. Uh, some false teachers and some of their followers went out from the congregation, as John says back in 1 John 2.19. And so this letter, 1 John, is written in an attempt to encourage and instruct those who were left behind. 
John's trying to help them understand what's happened and to keep them spiritually safe as they move forward. Right? John says those false teachers, those false prophets that went out from you, they're proof that Jesus' warning was necessary. It's not safe just to listen to anyone who claims to speak on behalf of Jesus. So he says, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether or not they're from God. That's the first thing we have to have in place. Don't believe every spirit. Don't believe every teacher who claims the name of Christ. Not everyone who who's claims to speak on behalf of Jesus actually speaks on behalf of Jesus. So the Pope in Rome claims to speak for Jesus. The televangelists on TV and the authors in the Christian bookstores and the preachers on the radio, they all claim they're speaking Jesus' truth to you. Pastors all over the world are standing up in pulpits like this one today, claiming to tell you the truth, that in the power of God's spirit, they are teaching what is right and accurate, the message that Christ has commissioned his people to teach and believe. Right now, pastors all over the world are proclaiming a message that they claim can save your soul. And so the first step is to cultivate a posture of of healthy skepticism. John says, don't be gullible. Don't be easily duped. Don't be taken in by claims and appearances. There are people who are trying to deceive you, as John's already told us back in 1 John 2, 26. He reminds us here at the end of verse 1, there are false prophets out in the world. And this is so important because believing a false message is spiritually deadly. Brothers and sisters, there is only one gospel that can save you. The one that Jesus proclaimed, the one that Paul proclaimed, the one that John and the other apostles proclaimed. Right? We've seen this message so far in 1 John. It's the, it's the message of a world trapped in sin, under the power of the evil one, as John says in 1 John 5.19. It's the message of God's great love, that he would send, on, send his son to take on human flesh for us, to bring us eternal life and forgiveness for our sins, as he tells us in 1 John 1, 2. Right? The only message that can save is the message of Jesus Christ, the righteous, the one who gave up his life on the cross as a substitute for our sins, as a sacrifice for us, as a, a propitiation for our sins, as John says in 1 John 2, 2. The only message that can save is the message of Jesus, physically raised from the dead in victory over sin and death, ascended into heaven, where he intercedes for us now and advocates on our behalf before the Father, as John tells us in 1 John 2, 2. The only message that can save is the message that anyone and everyone who will turn from their sins and trust in him will be brought out of darkness and into God's marvelous light, taken out of the family of the evil one and made a son or daughter of God, as John tells us in 1 John 3, 1 to 2. Brothers and sisters, there is no other message that can save you. If someone tells you that Jesus is one great teacher amongst the many religious teachers that can bring you to God, or if someone tells you that the salvation that God offers is primarily health and wealth in this life, or if someone tells you that you can merit God's favor by your good works, you must not listen to them. Those false messages are spiritually deadly. 
right? The churches in Galatia in the time of the Bible were being plagued by a different group of false teachers than the one that John's writing about. But the Apostle Paul shared John's concern about the danger of false teachers and false messages. And so he writes in Galatians 1, starting in the middle of verse 7, he tells the church there, there are some who trouble you. That word could be translated confuse you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, so Paul's speaking about him and his, his ministry team, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say now again, if anyone is preaching you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Friends, false teaching is spiritually deadly. If there was another way to be saved, if you could simply believe whatever you want to believe and live any way you want to live and still wind up forgiven and adopted into God's family and eternally blessed, then false teachers would, would pose little danger to us. But again, Jesus warned, it is a narrow gate that we go through in order to find eternal life. And so John warns us here, do not believe every spirit. We can't be taken in by false prophets. We have to have a healthy skepticism about people who claim to speak for God. And once you have that in place, once you're committed to being a person who does not uncritically believe every spirit, then the next step is to test them, as John says there in verse 1. Do not believe every spirit. Okay, got it. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Brothers and sisters, can you see how kind God is? That he's not left us to guess how we can know the difference between truth and falsehood. He doesn't hide the gospel so that only the most clever and sophisticated can find it. But he actually tells us very plainly how it is we can know. He gives us criteria by which to evaluate the spirits and the prophets and the teachers. And so we can evaluate the messages that they proclaim. And so let's move on then and see our second point for this morning. That is how you can know. We've seen the need for discernment. There are false teachers out there, false prophets proclaiming false messages, messages that cannot save you. And so the obvious question is, well, then how do we know? How do we test them? By what criteria? John tells us there in verses 2 to 3. He writes, by this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Okay, so there it is. You can tell whether or not someone has the spirit of God in them whether that's a teacher or someone who simply claims to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, John says, by this, you know. So what's this? There in verse 2, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. You can tell if someone is from God, that they've been called out of darkness into light, that they've been made a child of God by their confession that Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh? And so let's pull that apart. What does it mean when John says 
that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, or as we could translate it, Jesus is the Christ who has come in the flesh. What does that mean? Well, the word Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. The Messiah was the king that God had promised to send to his people, to Israel, to save them and to establish a world of blessing and joy. And so it seems that some of these false teachers that had gone out from John's church had claimed that the the spirit of the Messiah, the, the Christ, had come upon Jesus at his baptism. That's when Jesus became, Jesus the man, became Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. It was at his baptism that that actually took place. And then that spirit of the Messiah, or the Christ, departed from him before he went to the cross. Essentially, this was a denial of the incarnation. Right? The idea seems that what these false teachers were teaching was that the Son of God, the eternal, glorious, second person of the Trinity, would never stoop so low as to become an infant, a human child. And there's absolutely no way that the eternal and blessed Son of God, the the Christ, would stoop so low as to allow himself to be crucified like a common criminal. But here John's insisting that that's not true. The tense of the verb that John uses there uh, when he says, uh, has come, in verse 2, every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come, the tense of that verb there gives the sense that that the humanity, the, the flesh, that Jesus took on at his incarnation is his permanent possession. John is saying that the Son of God became a man. He stayed a man through his entire earthly life, and he remains fully human even now as he intercedes for us in heaven. And again, brothers and sisters, that's important because if that weren't true, then Jesus wouldn't be able to save human beings. If the Son of God wasn't born as a human infant, if he wasn't made manifest in a way that we could see with our eyes and touch with our hands, as John said back at the very beginning of his letter, then then Jesus could not serve as our representative. His obedience would mean nothing to us. It could never be credited to us because he wasn't one of us. If the Son of God didn't go to the cross in the flesh, Uh, He could never pay the price for the sins of human beings like me. Only the eternal Son of God could extinguish the infinite wrath that our sins deserve. Only a human being, a true man, could stand in the place of men and women on the cross. If Jesus wasn't fully God and fully man on the cross, he could not be the atoning sacrifice, the the propitiation for our sins, as John says back in 1 John 2.2. If the Son of God didn't rise from the dead and ascend bodily into heaven in the flesh, then then he couldn't represent us. He couldn't be our advocate in heaven. In short, any teaching that denies that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, come in human flesh, remaining in human flesh, any such teaching is false and cannot save. It's a lie. John says, you know it doesn't come from God's Spirit. There at the end of verse 3, John tells us such teaching comes from the spirit of the Antichrist, which is in the world already. If you remember a few weeks back when we thought about 1 John 2, 18, 
We saw the New Testament talks about a great deceiver who will arise at the very end of history in the period of time immediately preceding Jesus' return. But we also saw back in 1 John 2.18, there's a, there's a sense in which there will be a number of, of smaller, lesser, sort of lowercase a antichrists, deceivers who share in the spirit, the ethos, the, the methodology of the antichrist, deceivers who may not have the, the antichrist's power and final influence, but, but who work in ways that are consistent with his goals and methods. And so if all that's the case, right, if there are sort of people speaking in the spirit of the Antichrist, denying that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, well, well then what does it mean to confess that Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh? Remember, we're examining John's words there in verse 2. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So what does it mean then to confess that truth? Well, it must mean more than to simply affirm it or assert it, right? We're reminded in James chapter 2, even the demons believe the truths of the gospel and shudder at them. It doesn't mean that they're saved by those truths. Instead, what, what seems to be required for us to be saved by this confession that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is for our hearts to be brought in line with the truth. Right, the confession that John's talking about here in verse 2, it's not a sort of bloodless, cold assertion of facts, but it's a heart commitment. It's, it's trust in and delight in and awe at and worship of this eternal and blessed Son of God who would stoop to become a man. It is worship inspired by the notion that the Son of God would live as one of us and die under our curse and rise for our salvation and ascend into heaven in order to advocate for us with the Father. Jesus says, if a spirit confesses that truth, if the spirit in you or the spirit in someone else leads you or them to rejoice over and delight in and worship Jesus Christ come in the flesh, then you can be sure that spirit is from God because no false spirit, no false prophet, no antichrist would ever lead anyone to worship and delight in the Lord Jesus. Remember, John's goal here is that we would not believe every spirit, but that we would test the spirits to see whether they're from God. He wants us to listen to teaching that reflects the inspiration of God's spirit, which means teaching that exalts Jesus Christ, the God-man, come in the flesh to die for our sins. In the original context of 1 John, he wants his readers to ignore those false teachers, those who had gone out from them. John wants them to listen instead to him. So he says there in verses 5 to 6, if you look there in your Bibles, he says, they are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. John contrasts the teaching of the false prophets, he calls them they, and the teaching of the apostles. He 
refers to them as we. He says, they are from the world. They are from the realm that is under the power of the evil one. They speak from the world under the inspiration of the spirit of the Antichrist in the world, as he says there in verse 3. Therefore, it should be no surprise when John tells us in verse 5 that the world listens to them. It sounds right to the world. It sounds familiar to the world. We, the apostles, John says there in verse 6, are from God. That's John's resume. He doesn't claim any authority based on anything in him. John doesn't say, listen to me, not them. I have a better education. I actually am smarter and, and more powerful than they are. No, he doesn't point to his own cleverness, his own wisdom. Right? He says, when I'm teaching, I'm not teaching my thoughts or my ideas. No, he simply reminds his readers that he was called and sent by the Lord Jesus to bear his gospel into the world. He says, we are from God. His ministry is carried out by the power of and under the inspiration of God's spirit. And how do you know that's true? Well, because he's declared to them Jesus Christ come in the flesh. He's declared to them the true gospel message, the gospel that saves. And so the application is for us there at the end of verse 5 and in the middle of verse 6. Right? False teachers speak from the world. And so the people of the world listen to them. See that in verse 5. John and the apostles are from God, we see there in verse 6. And so in the middle of verse 6, he says, anyone who knows God will listen to them. Whereas anyone who's not from God will not. And so, brothers and sisters, the takeaway for us, I think, is clear. You know, at the beginning, we asked who it is that we can listen to. Who it is that we can believe in a, in a world of misinformation. Right? No one knows everything. No person comes into the world preloaded with all the information necessary to understand and interpret uh, life. And so we all have to figure out at some point or another who it is we're going to listen to. Who has the authority to tell me what to believe? Who has the authority to interpret the world to me? And there is no shortage of would-be authorities. There is no paucity of interpreters. If you go to college, professors will be happy to tell you what the world is like and what it ought to be like. Print media, pundits, online celebrities, viral videos, movies, pop stars, novelists, all of them present you with some sense of what's wrong with this world and what the good life would look like. Your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, whether implicitly or explicitly, all the people in your life are arguing for a way of thinking, a way of interpreting the world and your place in it. And so the question is, to whom are we listening? John says the people of the world listen to the world. It just makes sense to them. It sounds right. But the people of God listen to God. And the way that God speaks to us is through the word that his spirit has inspired, written down for us by the we in verse 6, by the prophets and the apostles. That's where God's people find God's truth. That's where God's people hear God's voice. That's how God's people know that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. That's how we know every other truth that we need to know in order to be brought to God. It doesn't come 
from the world. That truth doesn't come from the spirit of the world. We need the truth that comes from God. And so Christians are not people who close themselves off from every other voice. Right? The goal here is not, okay, everyone else is lying to you. Only read the Bible. Never look at the newspaper. Never go to a movie. Never listen to music. No, the goal is that the sort of posture of our hearts would be that this is where we start. This is what we trust. The idea is that we would know this book so well that when we go out into the world, we aren't uncritically drinking in its teaching. We aren't uncritically imbibing the spirit of the world around us. The goal is that our primary commitment be to God's word so that we can test the spirits, so that we can watch a movie and not just sort of absorb its message, but to, to critically evaluate it in line with God's truth. Test the spirits, John says. Learn to wield this sharp and double-edged sword to slice open the ideas of the world and evaluate them so you can see whether they represent God's truth or the spirit of the Antichrist. Brothers and sisters, this is such good news for us. I pray that we as a church family never take this for granted. The world we live in is a chaotic and confused place. There are many dangers, toils, and snares on our journey through this life. Jesus warned us the path we walk is hard. But we have a map. We have a guide. We don't blaze our own path. We don't reinvent the wheel with every generation. We don't have to listen to people who don't know what they're talking about. Because in his kindness, God has given us his word so that we can test the spirits, so that we can know whether or not they come from God. Church, it's possible to know whether a teaching, whether an idea comes from the Lord. And so we need to make sure that we're listening to the correct voices. And that brings us to our final point for this morning, and that is the power of God's spirit. Look there in verse four. It says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So there in verse four, John reminds his readers of two truths about them. The first truth is that they, he says, are from God. Little children, you are from God. The second truth is there in the middle of the verse. He says that, that his readers have overcome them. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. Right, John wants them to think for a moment about their spiritual condition. In a world that, that lies under the power of the evil one, John says they are from God. Well, how do we know? How do they know? In verse 2, right, we're told every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And so John's readers, the members of the church who had ousted these false teachers and who had remained faithful to the apostolic gospel, they held on tightly to that confession, even though there was great pressure to abandon it. That's what he means by you have overcome them, right? In the battle between the false teachers and, and this little battered, bruised church, John says, you won. You overcame. You emerged victorious. You held up under the onslaught of their lies and false teaching. 
these false prophets and their antichrist spirit were expelled and you've remained. Your faith is intact. Well, how is it possible that that's, that's what took place? How, how could these Christians overcome these false teachers? And for that matter, what hope do we have as Christians looking out over a world awash in confusion and misinformation and self-deception? How can we have any confidence that as we launch our kids out into a world that loves and cherishes and assumes and enforces a vision of life so different from us, how can we have any confidence as we do that? How can the flame of the Christian faith have any hope of surviving in a world that seems to have almost none of the spiritual oxygen that it needs to burn? Well, John tells us, he tells us how we can have confidence. He tells us how we can have hope that the gospel will go forward in a world like this. He says there at the end of verse 4, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. See, John understands that everyone in the world has someone in them. That is to say everyone, every human being, we could even say every human institution. Everyone is spiritually animated, influenced, controlled by spiritual forces. Right? Don't think like the Exorcist movies. Think like an operating system on, on a phone or a laptop. Right? Everyone has a sort of spiritual operating system working in the background determining how everything else functions. Everyone has a spiritual principle in them, animating them, influencing them, controlling them. And there are only two options, right? It's either Windows or Mac OS, right? Depending on your preferences, you can identify which one with which one, right? Either you're running the spirit of the world, your operating system is the, the diabolical, anti-God forces that lead people to, to deny or ignore or distort the gospel of the Lord Jesus, the Christ come in the flesh, or you're operating on the spirit of God abiding in us as we saw at the end of last week's past or two weeks ago at the end of chapter three, right? Those are the only two options. Either the spirit of the world is in you or the spirit of God is in you. And the encouragement that John has for us this morning, brothers and sisters, is that it is not a fair fight. This is not Godzilla versus Mothra. This is not Alien versus Predator, where you watch to the very end, not sure who's going to win. No, the Spirit of God, we're told here, is greater than the Spirit that's in the world. And that gives us great hope. God's purposes will not be frustrated by opposing spiritual forces. The Spirit of God is greater than the world, the flesh, and the devil. It gives us hope. It also gives us gratitude. If you've been given faith to confess the truth of the gospel in your heart, if you've been given eyes to see that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh to save you, well, that can only be by the powerful, gracious, loving work of God's Holy Spirit in your life. So church, we have nothing to boast in except the greatness of the love and power of our God. 
And we also have nothing to fear as we go out into the world. For the one who loved us and, and died for us lives in us by his powerful spirit. And so church, let's live out the presence of the spirit in us right now as we come to the Lord's Supper. Because at the table, God has put on display for us the truth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That his body was broken for you. That his blood was shed for you. And so let's celebrate the spirit in us by, by crying out, yes. Let's live out the presence of God's spirit in us now by coming to the Lord's Supper with hearts believing and, and rejoicing and confessing the truth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Now let's pray and then let's celebrate. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we delight in your great love for us. That while we were your enemies, you sent your Son to take on flesh and to live for us, to die for us, to rise and ascend for us. Lord Jesus, we love you and we worship you. We praise you for your sacrifice for us, that you took our sins upon yourself so that we could be made children of God. Holy Spirit, you are greater than the spirit in the world. And so we rejoice in your presence in us. We pray that you would help us to continue to confess the gospel message that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh to save us. We pray for any in our midst today, Spirit, that, that have not yet made that confession with, with full and sincere hearts. And we ask, Spirit, that you would give them by your power, the ability to do so, that you would open eyes, that you would soften hearts, that you would cause uh, everyone in this room to rejoice in the good news of Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.